Good morning. I'd like you to join me if you have your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Since they hadn't heard from their daughter in some time, it heightened their anticipation as they sat at the kitchen table and opened the letter from her. Dear Mom and Dad, just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy named Truck. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. About a year ago, ago he got a divorce. We've been going steady for two months and plan to get married in the fall. I have dropped out of school, and I've decided to move into his apartment. P.S., I think I might be pregnant. On the next page, she continued, Just want you to know that everything I've written so far is false. None of it is true. But it is true that I got a C- minus in French and I fluffed math, and it is true that I'm going to need some more money for tuition payments. Now, that's a pretty sharp co-ed. She knew that even bad news can sound good if you have the right vantage point. And that's true of most of life. How you react to life is largely dependent upon your perspective, upon your vantage point. And Paul understood that as he wrote to the Corinthian church in the first century because they were encountering an ailment that has afflicted Christians in every era. They were getting faint. They were thinking about quitting. They were running out of gas. Paul calls it in verse 1, losing heart. And again down in verse 16, losing heart. In today's vernacular, Paul would call it burnout. I read an article in the Post-Dispatch entitled, Pressures on Preachers Increasing. And it began with these words, Ministers may be considered closer to God, but the pressures of their jobs can be a living hell. And then it went on to give an example of a murder-suicide recently in Denver, Colorado, where both husband and wife were ministers. They made the statement that the divorce rate is increasing faster for the clergy than for any other profession. 40% of pastors say they've considered leaving their pastorate in the last three months. Nearly half say the greatest danger to them is physical, emotional, mental, spiritual burnout. In America, 1,000 people leave vocational ministry every year. And if that is true of professional ministers then how much truer is that of all Christians? Because we are all ministers. We all are called to minister for God. And I think we're all familiar with burnout and its symptoms. Somebody starts a ministry and they're all excited about it and they're all committed to it and they're going strong and they go strong for a few years and then you notice them start to slow down and slough off and back away. And when you ask them, what do they say? I think I'm getting burned out. 
Well, I've got some good news for you this morning. There is a remedy for burnout. There is an antidote for burnout. It was effective in Paul's day, and it's effective in our day. And it's very simple. It just requires for you to readjust your perspective. It just, it just inquire, requires you to look differently at your ministry. And Paul gives us the prescription for burnout in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4. And to do so, to prevent burnout, we have to have a proper perspective in five areas. And I've listed those in your bulletin. Number one, it's not my ministry. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now notice what he calls it. He calls it this ministry. What ministry? Well, we saw it last week in chapter 3. It's the ministry of the new covenant. That new relationship I have with God based on the new covenant. And what did we learn about the new covenant? The means is that it's all from God. My adequacy comes from Him because I'm inadequate. The message is all about Christ and the cross of Christ. And the metamorphosis is that my hope is that I'm being changed into the likeness of Christ. And so when you look at this ministry as described in chapter 3, the new covenant is all from God and nothing from me. And in case you missed that, notice what else he says in verse 1. He says, we have received mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. I didn't deserve to receive it. I can't do anything to fulfill it. It's all from God. It's nothing from me. In fact, look at what he says in chapter 3 and verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate. Let me ask you something. You don't have to answer out loud. If the nature of our ministry is that it's all from God and nothing from me, then how do I burn out? I'm not a generator. I'm a conductor. God is simply pouring his power through me and through you. There's no way I can burn out. You see, if I burn out, that means God must have burned out. Because it's all from him and nothing from me. And if I'm burning out, guess what that tells me? It's all from me. And it's not coming from God. The antidote to burnout is to understand the concept, it's not my ministry. Second, it's not dependent upon my cleverness. Notice verse 2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul mentions three things that we're not to depend on. Notice what they are. He says, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Now, what are the things hidden because of shame? Well, those are those sins that I commit that nobody else knows about. 
the, the, the skeletons in my closet. And what's our natural tendency with those things? We want to hide them. We want to do what Adam did when he first sinned. He ran and he hid from God. I want to hide it and pretend it's not there. I want to hide it and pretend I'm perfect. I want to hide it and walk in hypocrisy. But that's not what we're to do. Paul says we are to renounce those things. To renounce means to expose them and condemn them. If I don't renounce them, then guess what? I live in shame. See, I don't have to pretend to be somebody I'm not because I have a ministry of mercy. And what is mercy? That's God forgiving me over and over and over again. Who am I kidding if I stand around and say, I got it all together? I don't have any problems. I don't struggle with anything. I have to renounce those things. You see, our method of ministry is not to pretend we never sin. It's to take that sin and bring it into the light and renounce it for what it is. Receive God's forgiveness and go on. I'm to call sin, sin in my life and in your life. Remember one time I gave my testimony and... and, uh, Sometime I'll give it to you. But my testimony is not a pretty testimony. And I was giving it in front of a bunch of college students, and so I went into some detail about my testimony, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, how do you talk about yourself that way? How, how do you mention those things that you did? And I say, I can mention those things because I've brought them to the light, and they've been forgiven. And I want to bring those things up, not to encourage that you go there, but to let you know that that's not the right way to go, but that God can forgive even when we do. See, it's not dependent on my cleverness. It's not dependent on me hiding the fact that I have sin in order to impress other people. Second thing it doesn't depend on is also in verse 2. Notice it says, not walking in craftiness. It's an interesting word. He uses the same word later in 2 Corinthians 11.3 to describe the way the serpent deceived Eve. My methods are not to be satanic. My methods are not to deceive people. I'm not to use gimmicks. I'm not to use tactics that are pressure tactics. I'm not to use any kind of deceptive allurements. I read recently of a pastor who said he would give $7 to everybody who came on a certain Sunday. With inflation, that's not much. But that's not the way we get people to come to the truth of God. I I remember a pastor one time telling me, I'm sorry, he didn't tell me. I read it in the paper. He said in the paper that when it came to the gospel, he would do whatever it took to get people to come to Christ. That was about 25 years ago. That pastor has since burned out in ministry. And not only that, but burned out in his relationship with God. He, he would say he doesn't even believe in God today. But he was depending on his own tactics to accomplish his ministry. Third thing we're not to do, 
and depending on is, notice in verse 2, or adulterating the Word of God. What's it mean to adulterate the Word of God? That means to compromise it in order to make it sell. To adjust it, to make it more palatable to people. And we've got preachers today who dilute the Word of God. I need to soften some of this. We've got preachers today who confound the Word of God. I've got to add some philosophy to this to make it more complex. We've got preachers today who edit the Word of God. They say, well, that portion's really not there, so I'm going to take it out. Years ago, they had a a seminar called the Jesus Seminar, and they invited 100 scholars there. And those 100 scholars sat and worked over the, the... the words of Jesus in the gospel, and they whittled them away until they agreed that there were five statements in the the gospels that Jesus actually made. That's a great accomplishment. The United Church of Christ has gained the dubious honor of being the first denomination to support same-sex marriage. And there are many coming along behind them. What do you have to do to the Word of God to get to that position? You have to disregard, you have to adulterate the Word of God. We've got people that say, well, we've got to adapt to the 21st century. Let me tell you something. Paul says, we don't need those methods. What method do we need? What do we depend on? Notice verse 2, but by the manifestation of the truth. You know what we have to do? We simply have to take the truth and lay it on the table. Open it up and lay it on the table. You see, the truth is so radical, it's so awesome, it's so universal, it's so relevant that I don't need any tricks to prop it up. I don't need my craftiness to make it more effective. I don't need to edit it to make it more interesting. It is the most captivating subject on the face of the earth. Because the truth of God doesn't just speak to people's intellect. And it doesn't just speak to people's emotions. As he says in verse 2, it speaks to people's conscience. It goes through the mind, through the emotions, right to the conscience. And says, this is truth. Softening sin doesn't speak to people's conscience. My craftiness doesn't speak to people's consciences. Distorting the Word of God doesn't speak to people's conscience. But if I will manifest the truth, God says it cuts right to the conscience. That's why I've told you before, I'm a paper boy. Not an editor. I'm just a paper boy. I just deliver the news. Here it is. Here's what God says. Try not to get it on the roof or in a mud puddle. Get it to you, deliver it to you, and there it is. I'm not editing it. I'm not changing it. I'm not doing anything. I'm simply a paper boy. See, I don't add anything to it. I don't take anything away from it. I simply manifest it. And guess what? That takes the burden off me. How can I burn out as a paper boy? I just got to get up every morning and ride my bike. You see, the antidote for burnout is to understand that it is not dependent upon my cleverness. 
Third, I can't overcome the enemy. You say, well, Dan, if the message is so penetrating, why do people hear it and still not believe? Well, that's the perspective we need in understanding that we have a formidable opponent. We have a formidable enemy. Notice verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. We're not veiling the message. We're manifesting the message. And yet some people are still not seeing it. Some people are still wearing a veil the way we read in last chapter that Moses wore the veil over his face. And who are the people that are wearing the veil? He says, those who are perishing. And why can't they see? Look at verse 4. In whose case the God of this world, who's that? Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What is Satan doing? He is blinding people's minds. When you first become a Christian, what's one of the first questions you ask? It's like you came out of darkness into light. It's like somebody turned the light on and you said, wow, I see this for the first time. And your next question is, why doesn't everybody see what I see? Here's the answer. Satan blinds their minds. How does he do that? Two primary ways. He gets people to believe they have no need or he gets people to think they can fulfill that need themselves without Christ. He gets people to think they have no need. There are people who walk around today who think they're never going to die. They tell themselves that. They live in a little illusion bubble and they say, I'm going to live forever. I see them at funerals. I love funerals. Get to preach to people who don't want to be there sometimes. And and you can just see it in their eyes. They don't want to be there, and they want to get away from there and get back into their illusion as quick as they can so they can think, I'm never going to die. Guess what? You're going to show up there again. You'll be at the funeral home, whether you walk in or not. People say, I have no need. Why would I need that? I'm never going to die. Or, I have no need because I'm not a sinner. I'm okay. God and I kind of have things, you know, he's kind of grading on a curve and and I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm better than most people I know, which questions the people you know. He gets people to think they have no need. And then if you acknowledge you've got a need, he gets you to say, well, you can fulfill that need yourself. How? By religion that has distorted and adulterated and eliminated the gospel. By a religion that says, I'm adequate. I can do good deeds in order to please God. When we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told that Satan is an angel of light. 
He doesn't go around in a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork. He is an angel of light. He is standing in pulpits with a robe and a collar today. He is standing in pulpits with three-piece suits on, and he is communicating something that has adulterated the Word of God. So people settle for the angel of light who is actually the prince of darkness. And what do they miss? They miss, I love this phrase, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Just as Moses stood on the mountain in front of the glory of God and he had to wear the veil afterwards, these people stand in front of the glory of God but they can't see it because they have a veil over their face that blinds them from the light. That's why the last verse of chapter 3 is so exciting. It says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. God has taken away the veil and we get to look at the glory of God. And where do we see it? We see it in Christ. And we're being changed into that image, which we're told here is the image of God. What an amazing thing to have been brought to the light by him. And so as we're doing our ministry, I think we need to understand that we face a formidable enemy who has blinded people's minds. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't be put off by that. Remember the parable of the sower? If you read the parable of a sower, there's four kinds of soil. Only one soil was good soil, which tells me you can expect about 25%. At best, one out of four people are going to respond to the gospel, which means three out of four are going to say what? Whatever. My job is to manifest the gospel. And when I manifest the gospel, guess what? God blindsides people. People that can't see have the light of the gospel revealed to them. And so the antidote for burnout is to understand that I cannot overcome the enemy. That's a God thing. Third, or fourth, I'm not Lord. You say, Dan, I kind of knew that. Well, look at verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. How do I preach me as Lord? If I preach and you go away from here and you say, man, that was an amazing preacher, then I have failed. Because you should go away from here saying, wow, what an amazing Savior. Let me tell you something. You, if you didn't know this, you should. 
most preachers struggle with ego. I heard about a congregation that gave their pastor a medal for humility and had to take it back because he wore it. There's a danger in thinking that we are the remedy to man's problem. And so when we preach, we preach about the church and we preach, you know, you need Christian education, you need the Christian way of life, you need our programs. And when that's where my focus is on preaching, guess what? I am off-center. Because the center of ministry is not me. The center of ministry is Jesus Christ. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And when he is in the center, where does that put me? Well, he tells us in verse 5, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. I'm serving him by serving you. Now, if all I'm doing is serving you, I'm going to burn out. But I am serving you as service to him. You want the formula for preaching the gospel that God will honor? Focused on the lordship of Christ and backed up by a servant's heart. That's it. Focused on the fact that Jesus is Lord and backed up by a servant's heart. And when the Lord Jesus is at the center of our ministry, we won't have to worry about burnout. Because burnout is going to only happen when I'm at the center. So the antidote for burnout is a proper perspective that says, Jesus is Lord and I'm not. I am servant. And then finally, I'm not creator God. Verse 6, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now that's an incredible statement. The same God who said in Genesis 1-3, let there be light has shown in our hearts. He didn't just speak light into your heart. It's, he showed up. And he has shown in your heart. And what is the light? It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where do we find it? We find it in the face of Jesus. Now that's an amazing statement coming from Paul because he used to be Saul and he used to hate Christ try to kill Christians. He was busy trying to kill Christians on the road to Damascus when he was blinded. Not just physically, he was already blinded spiritually because he thought he had no need. He, he would have said, I'm adequate. And even the need he did recognize, he tried to fulfill himself by religion that says, I can do these things and please God. He was blind spiritually. God blinded him physically and he experienced what he had long sought the knowledge of the glory of God. But to his amazement, where did he find the knowledge of the glory of God? In the face 
of Jesus. That's the only place you'll find him. And that's an amazing ministry. And that's the ministry we are called to. We live in a dark world full of blinded individuals, but we have a God who can bring people out of darkness into light. And he is doing that every single day. What an incredible ministry. I mean, who's going to burn out with that kind of ministry? The antidote for burnout is a proper perspective that says, I am not creator God. He is the only one who can make a new creation. So let me ask you this question. Have you felt like giving up? Are you running out of gas? You feel like you're burning out? Paul gives us the remedy. He says you need a proper perspective on your ministry. It's not my ministry. It's all from God, nothing from me. It's not dependent on my cleverness. All I do is manifest the truth of God. That's the power. I can't overcome the enemy. We have a formidable enemy who has blinded people's minds, and I can't make blind people see. Fourth, I am not Lord. I proclaim Jesus as Lord. And fifth, I am not creator God. The God of all creative light has shown his glory into my heart, and he's given me the privilege of sharing that glory with others in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you get this perspective, not just on paper, when you get this perspective in your heart and you can make these statements and know that they're true, you may flame out in the service for God, but you will never burn out. I'm going to have the praise team come back. And as they sing and lead us in worship, I want you to reflect on what God has said to all of us today. And maybe there's a statement here that you can't say in honesty before God. I would challenge you to confess that to the Lord and make that your honest statement before Him so that it becomes His ministry and not yours. Let's stand as we worship in closing.